With the experiences of the cross just a few hours away, Jesus is sharing with his disciples some parting words. In many ways, Jesus is utilizing these final moments to prepare these men for what he knows was coming. They might have been oblivious. That night, this very night, Jesus would be arrested. He would be tried in a kangaroo court, scourged, crucified. He would die, be laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. But then three days later, he would rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and send his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Jesus knows these things are on the horizon. The disciples are oblivious. As a matter of fact, all of these topics establish for us the backdrop for the subject matter covered during this very evening. John 13 through John 17 record this ongoing dialogue. Now, in order to set the scene for where we presently are in John 16, keep in mind a few things. At the close of John 14, Jesus and his crew have left the upper room. Then at the opening of chapter 18, we're told they exit the temple, cross the Kidron, and enter the Garden of Gethsemane. For reasons that I established last Sunday, it's my belief that verse 5 of chapter 16, we find Jesus and his disciples likely somewhere in the temple precincts. Continuing the very discourse began earlier in that evening around a Passover table. Although we'll pick up things beginning with verse 5. In case you weren't with us last Sunday, let's get a running head start by just beginning with verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus, with the disciples somewhere in the temple precincts, he turns to the men, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that you should not be made to stumble. He's speaking of persecution, how the world would hate them, persecute them. He continues, They will put you out of the synagogues, which was a big thing for a Jewish lad, this was akin to excommunication, being, being removed from society. Yes, the time is coming, Jesus says, that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father, nor me. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now we jump back into the flow of the narrative, verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And in the context, this is his heavenly father. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Now that's an interesting uh, statement made by Jesus, especially in light of the fact that both Peter and Thomas earlier in this discourse have asked similar questions. David Guzik observes about Jesus asking this. He says, their previous asking was in the sense what will happen to us when you leave? Not in the sense that Jesus meant here, what will happen to you when you leave? Jesus says, but because I have said these things to you, the fact he'd be leaving them soon, sorrow has filled your heart. The disciples here, they're filled with sorrow because Jesus has said he's going to be leaving them. But they're filled with sorrow because their only focus has been inward. They've been focused on what they were going to be losing by Jesus' departure. So with that in mind, nevertheless, or despite all of that, this inward perspective focused on what you would lose, I tell you the truth, or you can take this to the bank, you can be certain. And then Jesus makes this amazing statement. He says, it is to your advantage. 
You're focused on what you're going to lose. Let me tell you this with surety. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, this parakletos, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Now following this promise of a coming persecution and the fact these men were consumed with what they'd lose with his departure, Jesus again returns the focus to the Holy Spirit. You should note, and, and you would understand this if you've been with us for any length of time, but on three occasions thus far, in this very discourse, in this evening, Jesus has brought up the topic of the Helper, this coming Helper. First, in John 14, verses 16 and 17, and within the context of His impending departure, Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is the first occasion. Then in John 14, verses 25 and 26, a little later into the discourse, within the context of their continuing education from his physical departure, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, uh, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. And note, as we prayed, only the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can take God's Word and supernaturally transform a person's life. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Finally, in John 15, verses 26 and 27, in the context of this persecution these men would face for the cause of Christ, Jesus says, but when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of Me. And you will also bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. Now, for the fourth time, Jesus continues to discuss the Helper, the Parakletos. And He does so by making a radical statement. He tells these men that while they were focused on what they would be losing when He departed to heaven, he says it's to their advantage that he goes away. For if the helper did not, if, if he did not go, the helper would not have come. Jesus here is literally saying that it was better, it was better, best, for his disciples that he leave them and ascend to heaven so that the Holy Spirit could come to earth and take his place. Now, from the perspective of these men, and in context, who's he talking to? He's talking to a group of people that have been rolling with him for the last two and a half years, every day. They had forsaken all, left behind jobs and family. They had been following Jesus day and night as disciples. And now what he's telling them from their mind, their that was inconceivable. It's better for you guys if I leave you. What? Now, before we unpack how this would be an advantage... Let me explain what Jesus meant when he said, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. To begin with, it's important to understand what Jesus isn't saying in this statement. Jesus is not saying the Holy Spirit and his physical presence on the earth could not exist at the same time. As if Jesus had to go to heaven so that the Holy, there, was, there would be room 
for the Holy Spirit on earth. The simple fact is that we have many biblical examples of the Holy Spirit and Jesus working together in the same earthly space and time. The first two verses of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. The Word is Jesus. We see the Spirit and the Word working in, in connection on the earth. Aside from the creation narrative, and I could give you many examples, but let me just point you to Luke chapter 3. We're told that when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, we're told the heavens opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Not only do we have the physical presence of the Holy Spirit and the physical presence of Jesus on the earth at the same time, we also have a voice, the Heavenly Father coming from heaven. All three members of the triune nature of God at work in one particular scene. You see, the key to understanding what Jesus means when he says, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The key to understanding that statement is to keep in mind the fundamental purpose of the Holy Spirit, not universally, but specifically in the lives of his disciples. This is the context. And to this point, remember, back in John 14, verse 16, that Jesus promised not just to send the helper, did he? Or a helper. Instead, Jesus specifically said another helper. It tells us a lot. In our exposition through that passage, we noted that the Greek word another didn't imply an additional helper, but rather a helper of the same kind as the first. Jesus is saying that what he had been to these men physically the Spirit would be to them spiritually. Because the ultimate role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a disciple is to bring the presence of Jesus into the individual's life through his indwelling. It appears that Jesus' physical departure from the world was required for his spiritual manifestation to take place through the Spirit in our lives. Think of it this way. Jesus needed to leave physically, so that we could interact with him spiritually. It's not more complicated than that. Now, what makes Jesus' presence in heaven and the Spirit's presence on earth to our advantage? Again, Jesus is making a very radical statement. It's to your advantage that I leave. So what is the advantage? Now, to answer this question, we're going to look at really two different sides of the same coin. First, we're going to look at the advantage we have with Jesus in heaven, as well as then the advantage we have with the indwelling Holy Spirit. First, what are the advantages of Jesus being in heaven as opposed to him being here on earth? For starters, as you're thinking this through, Jesus had several important tasks that he needed to accomplish in heaven that were to our specific benefit. For example, we noted in John 14 verse 2, Jesus has already told these men, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would tell you, I go to do what? I go to prepare a place for you. And like a very simplistic examination, Jesus left earth, needed to go to heaven, 
to prepare a place for you and I to spend eternity. I'm glad he did. Aside from this, in the very next verse in John 14, Jesus promises that on the other side of death, because he's there, the firstborn of the resurrection, we can be confident that when we die, he will come again and receive us to himself. He says, not only have I gone to prepare a place for you, but I will come again and receive you to myself. Because of Jesus' eternal state in heaven, not on earth, we know that when we die, we can be confident, yes, sure, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Again, if Jesus was on earth, what kind of confidence would we have? Beyond these incredible benefits to a heavenly Jesus, according to Hebrews, it was essential Jesus be in heaven so that he could act as our high priest, our mediator and advocate. Not only is it through Jesus that we now enjoy presently access to God the Father. I hope you know that that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We are praying to God the Father through Jesus, through His authority, through His work, through what He's accomplished. We pray through Jesus. Beyond that, it's by Jesus in the throne room of God that you and I are found presently to be both righteous and justified. You know, it's an amazing thought to consider. But think about this. Right now, this very moment, Jesus is in heaven working on your behalf. He is praying for you, interceding for you, cheering you on. Right now, Jesus, the Son of God, has you on his mind. In Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34, Paul writes, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's a question. Then he answers it. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? Then Paul answers, It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2, through 2, our, our author John, he writes, My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin, but if you sin, it's okay. We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. So Jesus as this mediator, as his advocate, it's important. He's in heaven, in the throne room of God, on our behalf. Now, I could take the remainder of our time this morning and kind of, we could do a deep study on these things. But I want to read for you just a few passages from Hebrews that establish a more expansive understanding of the important role Jesus has as high priest. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, we read, Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren. He had to come as a man, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest, this being in heaven, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Or, or literally, Jesus, he can resonate with our human experiences because he was a human. Hebrew says, 
but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 22, by much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests, this is being earthly priests, because they were prevented by death from continuing. Couldn't continue as a priest because they died. But Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as other high priests, earthly high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first of his own sins and then for the people's. For Jesus did this once, for all, when he offered up himself. Speaking of the crucifixion. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, this being grace, faith, appoints the Son, Jesus, as high priest, who has been perfected forever. One more passage. Hebrews chapter 8, chapter eight verse 6 verses. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest, Jesus, who is presently seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected. For if Jesus was on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of heavenly things. But now Jesus, because he's in heaven, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. That he's faithful when we're faithless. That his work is sufficient when ours falls very short. How amazing. Now, in light of the obvious benefits of Jesus being in heaven, preparing for us an eternal home, receiving us to himself when we pass, presently acting as our high priest, our advocate, our mediator, on the other side of this coin, because, man, that's a benefit. Jesus being in heaven is an obvious benefit. But aside from that, we should consider what are the advantages of the indwelling spirit being here in our lives versus the physical presence of Jesus being here. Now, in order to answer this question, just consider for a moment the very limitations that would exist if Jesus had remained on earth physically. Honestly, if Jesus was presently sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, what kind of relationship could you possibly expect to have with him? Like, just play that out. If Jesus was still on the earth and was in Jerusalem at a temple, what kind of relationship would you have with Jesus? A man isolated to a physical location, one location, and whose attention was reserved to only one interaction at a given time. Like, best case scenario, think about it. You would be lucky to have one five-minute conversation with Jesus in a lifetime. And what would be the role of prayer? Because Jesus is on earth, not in heaven. Beyond this, what purpose would we have Christians have in this world if Jesus was physically here? I mean, our role in the work would be silly. I mean, who would want to listen to me preach when you could tune in and watch Jesus preach from Jerusalem? Like, what need would Jesus have of you and I being representatives in a dark world when the light of the world was present? I ran across one author who was like, we wouldn't have the Bible. 
Because Jesus, as the Word of God, everything he said would have to be scribed. It would be an ongoing Bible. We'd have volumes and volumes and volumes. It would be very hard for us to hear and receive. Again, if Jesus was physically present. And yet, because the physical Jesus is in heaven, manifesting now in the world through his Spirit, the limitations of the physical no longer are there. You see, through the Spirit, it is now possible for each of us to spend time with Jesus irregardless of time or locale. Because it's not based in the physical, it's spiritual. He indwells each of us, so it's personal. Because of His physical place in heaven and the practical indwelling of His Spirit in us, it is now possible that each of us can have a personal and continual and intimate relationship with Jesus independent from each other. Jesus removed himself from the physical limitations of time and space by ascending to heaven, giving us instead an advantage, an internal connection with him through his Holy Spirit. And remarking on the amazing implications of this very idea, one commentator remarked, writing, quote, the dispensation of the Spirit is a more blessed manifestation of God than was even the bodily presence of the risen Savior. That's amazing. We are indeed blessed with a blessed advantage. Think about being a saint in the Old Testament. You wanted to encounter God. How did that happen? Well, you had to leave whatever village you were in. You had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You had to get to the temple, a physical location, to encounter the presence of God, the Shekinah glory in the, in the temple. Beyond that, let's say you were a, a gospel saint during the time Jesus walked the earth. You wanted to encounter Jesus. How did that have to happen? You had to find wherever Jesus was and be there at the same time, same location. That was limiting. Not everyone was able to encounter Jesus in such a way. But now, we don't need a location. We don't need a specific time. No matter where we are, we, can, we have access to Jesus, access to the throne of grace because of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you are now the temple of the living God. You are the temple. As Jesus said, I will dwell in them, and they shall be my people. Jesus continues this topic, writing in verse 8. But when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Well, the majority of Jesus' teaching concerning the Holy Spirit has centered on his future role in the lives of his disciples as the helper. Jesus continues, though, this section, speaking of now the power and work of the Holy Spirit in the context of not the believing world, but the unbelieving world. Now, before we look at the three things that Jesus mentions, the Spirit will convict the world of probably important to expand your understanding of what this word convict means. It's much broader than our English translation. It's broader than issuing a verdict. 
to convict, to issue a verdict. The word convict, it can actually be translated from, from the Greek as reprove, expose, rebuke, to reveal one's need, or literally to bring to a, confec- to a confession. It describes more of a process than a verdict. First, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. Why? Because they do not believe in Him. Much more than sin here in a universal sense, Jesus mentions a specific sin, doesn't He? The sin of not believing in Him. Aside from the fact that there is no provision for the sin of rejecting Jesus, the Holy Spirit is active today in the world, revealing to the world a fundamental need for a Savior. Secondly, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because he went to his Father, because he went to his Father and they see him no more. Not only did Jesus, while on earth, establish a pure standard for what is right and wrong. You know, in today's culture, you ask someone, hey, why are you going to heaven? Oh, well, I mean, because that's easy. I'm a good person. Okay. You know what you actually mean by that? You mean you're a better person than other people you know. That's what you mean. You say, I'm a good person in the context of, okay, well, I know that friend of mine. Like, okay, I get drunk on Friday, but he gets drunk during like the work week. I'm better than he is. I only party twice a month, not every week. I'm better than he is, which makes me good. We establish for ourselves our own plumb lines of comparison. When I say I'm a good person, I'm saying I'm just better than the other people I know. I'm more responsible. The problem is, is that doesn't make you good because you're using a flawed standard. See, Jesus came to earth and remained sinless, lived as a human and remained sinless. So if you want to actually judge whether or not you're a good person or a bad person, don't compare yourself to your neighbor. Compare yourself to Jesus. Look at Jesus and say, okay, in comparison to him, how am I doing? Not so good. Just letting you know. In comparison to Jesus. He's the standard for righteousness, which is why then the Bible says that none are good. Not one. See, no one will be able to stand before God on the basis of their own goodness, their own merit. You fall short of the glory of God, we read in Romans. So Jesus, he establishes this pure standard of right and wrong, righteousness, what is right. Beyond that, the empty tomb reinforced everything Jesus said about the afterlife. So more than just the need for salvation, convicting the world of sin, the Holy Spirit also convicts the world of righteousness by testifying that Jesus is the standard of truth and what's right, as well as the way in life. Finally, Jesus says of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. You know, while Satan this very night, will have thought himself to have dealt Jesus a death blow. In the resurrection, Jesus would emerge victorious. And it's because of that, notice, that the ruler of the world is judged. This, is, this has happened and is continuing to happen and will continue to happen. His verdict is sealed. And because of that, The Spirit is in the world testifying that this world, this system, because the ruler of it is judged, the status quo will not last forever. 
a reckoning is on the horizon. Even, even people that are, are fundamentally godless, in the sense that they don't believe in God, there is still this ominous reality of coming judgment. You know how man is going to be judged? You know, because we've raped the earth, pumped out all of its oil, not cared about the environment? Well, all the ice is going to melt, and we're going to get flooded. We're all going to die. Twelve years, I don't know if you heard. Twelve years, we're all dead. Now, I don't mean to make fun, and, and there's, a, there's an argument to be made about being a conservationist and whatnot. But my point is that even people that don't follow Jesus, there is still this like, internal sense that there's a judgment. And global warming, man will be judged for the sin of not taking care of the earth by the earth. Earth's going to reset itself. There's within everyone an understanding, this ain't going to last. And yet, who's the one doing it? It's the Holy Spirit. You know, when considering the role of the Holy Spirit within the world, let me, let me paint, let me use an illustration to kind of help you unpack it. If you are a Christian, a believer, Holy Spirit's dwelling inside of you. Think of the Holy Spirit, man, this is a terrible analogy, but think of him as a lawyer. In a good sense, he's a lawyer. Now, if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, Christian, as a lawyer, the Holy Spirit is your defense attorney. He's not convicting you of anything. He's defending you from everything. As a matter of fact, he always believes you're right because you're righteous. Even when you're wrong, he's still your defense attorney. Not selling you out. Going to defend you to the end. Why? Well, because you have a basis in Jesus. So if you're a Christian, he's your defense attorney. He's a lawyer, but he's your defense attorney. But for the unbelieving world, he's not defending the world. He's convicting the world, which makes him a prosecutor. He's the accuser, pointing it out. And what's interesting about the Holy Spirit, in either dynamic, he's never lost a case. He's never failed to prosecute those needing prosecution, and he's never failed to defend those found in Jesus. Now before we move on, I do think it's worth adding that Jesus here, okay, so he's talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the unbelieving world. But by extension, he is making a point to his disciples. I think an important point, one we shouldn't miss. You see, Jesus is clear that it is the role of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. N not the disciples. Hey, the Spirit will do this. And you know, that should be freeing. Our job as Christ's followers is to shine a light into the darkness. It's to go and make disciples of the nations. Our job as Christ's followers is not to go into the world to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Holy Spirit does that. That's His role. Our job is to go and make disciples, to be a light, to be salt. The work of conviction is the Spirit, not you. That's his job. Now, knowing his time is running out, again, getting back into the scene, walking through the temple precincts, chatting with his, his disciples, he knows things are, are quickly expiring. Maybe even he can hear the fortress of Antonio activity, knowing that a, a grouping of, of soldiers is getting ready. They're going to come and try to find him. So verse 12, he says, I... 
I still have many things to say to you. And you can hear Jesus' tone in that, you know? I have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears me speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. Now, in wrapping up this section on the Holy Spirit, Jesus, he, he says a few fascinating things. First, he makes it clear that the Holy Spirit would declare to these men things that Jesus had not yet taught them. That's what he says. Jesus' point is that divine revelation would be completed by the Holy Spirit. You might say that Jesus here is anticipating the formation and completion of our New Testament, the Bible. And notice how the Spirit would specifically accomplish this. Jesus says the Spirit will guide you into all truth. This word guide means to lead the way. Like never forget the doctrine, all of the doctrine recorded in the New Testament was motivated by the Holy Spirit guiding each of the individual authors. But that's not all the Spirit would do. Jesus also says the Spirit will tell you things to come. This word tell, it means to announce or proclaim to make known. Additionally, we can surmise that the Spirit's unique involvement will be included in the revelation of things to come. All future prophecy was also given, by, given to the writers through the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul, he kind of sums up what Jesus says here. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the Greek, this word inspiration is one of my favorite Greek words. Literally means God breathed. God breathed the Scriptures. And no doubt this is a reference to this working of the Holy Spirit and the continued revelation uh, of, of the Godhead. Now, because this is important, the Holy Spirit is going to play a, an essential role in the completion of the revelation of God. Jesus here also buries into, into the text a litmus test. How you are to evaluate if indeed the Holy Spirit was inspiring the Scriptures. Jesus says there's two things. First, there would be a continuity between what Jesus has already taught them and the things that the Spirit continues to teach them. Again, Jesus says, I am the truth, and then refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Meaning, if there's anything that you ever come across that is in direct conflict to something Jesus said, then it wasn't of inspiration of the Spirit. Because they're working together. Beyond that, the Spirit in the end has but one role, and that is to glorify Jesus. Well, verse 16, a little while, this is a complicated section of Scripture, a little while and you will not see me. Uh, talking about his crucifixion and death. But then he says, and again, a little while and you will see me. Which is his resurrection and then ascension. 
because I go to the Father. Well, some of his disciples said among themselves, what? (laughs) What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this he says, a little while, we do not know what he is saying. The disciples are clearly confused. John, our author, now then adds a bit of commentary, verse 19, so that when Jesus knew what they desired to ask, implying they're confused but they don't want to ask for clarity, Jesus, perceiving this, says to them, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? You can see these guys like, yeah, pretty confusing, Jesus. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. (laughs) What? But the world will will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Still confused? Okay, let me help clarify. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hours come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. My wife Jessica has had this experience with two of the three children. You can figure that out on your own. Jesus says, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And your joy no one will take from you. Glad Jesus cleared it up, right? Again, what Jesus is articulating here is really only understood by the various reactions that would take place from his crucifixion. Again, the disciples would be filled with sorrow. The world would rejoice. But then there would be a resurrection where their sorrow would now turn to joy. Impossible for them to really know what Jesus is saying in the moment, but they would come to see it in a few days. They would be filled with sorrow by what would occur, but their sorrow would be turned to joy when Jesus rose from the dead. No question, this promise. I will see you again. was supposed to be an anchor for these men in the coming storm. No matter what happened, guys, I will see you again. Just relax. You know, from an applicational point of view, don't miss the larger idea that's being presented. Jesus doesn't promise to take away their sorrow. Please notice that. He's not promising his disciples a a sorrowless existence. I got that out eventually. Instead, what is Jesus promising? He's promising to take their sorrow and transform it into joy. Meaning that Joy is kind of tethered to sorrow. In fact, this joy, Jesus says, no one would ever be able to take from you. In Psalms 30, verse 5, and this is in some of our worship songs, we sing that weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And in that day, verse 23, you will ask me nothing. This word ask, it literally means that once all things had come to fruition, they'd have no more questions. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask, totally different Greek word for ask. This word describes a servant making a request of a superior. He says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Again, asking in his name. 
Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask. And, and the tense here implies a continual asking. A persistent asking. Keep asking and you will receive. That your joy may be full. Again, Jesus makes this connection between sorrow and joy and now prayer and joy. Verse 25 these things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and, I, and have believed that I came forth from God. Now, up until this point in time, Jesus had prayed for these men. Case in point, chapter 17, one of the most unique chapters in all of the Bible, an extended prayer of Jesus, not just for these men, but then for us as well. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. But he's letting them know, I've been praying for you, but the day's coming that, that you won't need me to pray for you. That you will be able to pray on your own, you'll be able to approach the Father on your own in my name. Friend, if you love Jesus, you should never be afraid of approaching God. You know, in our culture, we've got this idea of Jesus was the loving one. The God of the Old Testament, I mean, sinners in the hands of an angry God. But not so. If you love Jesus, Jesus is the Father himself. He loves you. This word love, it's, it's not agape, actually, which is that divine, intimate love. It's phileo. Literally, it can be translated, my Father, God, you guys love me. My Father is so fond of you. He's fond of you. You know, you might not like yourself. And there are times that's probably justified. Where you're like, my personality is just terrible. Why do I have to be like this? There might be times that you don't like yourself. Something you've done, something you've gone through. I want you to know this morning, while you might not like yourself, God is absolutely fond of you. He's, now, he loves you. He loves you enough not to leave you that way. He wants to change you. But he's fond of you. And, and in a world where we're all longing for love, how freeing it is to know that the only opinion in the universe that matters of you is God's in the end. And again, he's fond of you. Verse 28, Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. You should highlight that verse. It's an interesting summation, in many ways, of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. He says, I came forth from the Father, which is him substantiating the idea that, that, he's, that he came from God, that he's God. Came forth, or of the same nature of, same substance of. And then he says, he, he has come into the world. I came from the Father, I was divine, but I came into the world. Now he's speaking of his incarnation, being born a man. But again, I, I'll leave the world and go back to my Father. Now, when Jesus began this section, he challenged them to ask where he was going, right? But now he answers this rhetorical question, guys, I'm going home. I came from the Father, I came to earth, but I'm going back, man. My mission on earth will be concluded with the resurrection, and then, man, I will ascend. Verse 29, so his disciples said to him, See, 
Yes, you are now speaking plainly. And using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. We got it, Jesus. Thank you. You made it simple. (laughs) Jesus answered, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. Well, these men here, they think that they finally understand what Jesus is getting at. (laughs) Jesus makes it clear, you, you don't have any clue. You have no idea, guys, what's coming. You're not ready. It'll be okay. In fact, Jesus tells them that their faith was going to be tested, that they would fail miserably. He says, the hour's coming, guys. You're going to be scattered, and you're going to leave me alone. Verse 33, we'll close out the chapter here. We read these things, Jesus says, I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Again, as I mentioned, chapter 17 is, is going to record a, a radical prayer that Jesus prays for these men. So following, I have overcome the world, Jesus will pray. And then they will leave the temple, cross the Kidron, and enter the Garden of Gethsemane. The reason that's significant is that verse 33 here actually records, at least from God, John's Gospel, Jesus' final words to these men before his arrest. You know, for the last few chapters, Jesus has been pouring out his heart. Not with the intention that the men should be troubled or discouraged, but that in him they might find peace. There's a storm brewing. I've warned you. I've done my best to prepare you. I want you to have peace in me. You know what's interesting about the way Jesus phrases this? He says, in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. (laughs) What Jesus is doing is that he's offering them peace. He's promising tribulation. You could have peace, you will have tribulation. Furthermore, knowing tribulation was coming, Jesus wanted them to be confident. In fact, he even says, to be of good cheer. Why? Ah, I've overcome the world. Now, over the coming days, that statement, I have overcome the world, it would be put to the test. It would seem that the world had overcome Jesus. And yet, Jesus presents this concept in the past present tense. What that means, from Jesus' perspective, victory was already His. So, Father, Lord...